So we're starting a new series this morning. Proud to be an American. Yeah. All right. So some, at some point, Jake's going to get that one song that Lee, is that Lee Greenwood? Just get the chills, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to try to sing it. I was about to. No. There's a cool song <laughs> called Proud to be an American. But as we have been doing for the last several months, I feel led and compelled even just to speak to straight to some of the issues and concerns that almost by, not even by choice, by force, we have to look at every day. And right now, the, the upcoming elections are in the forefront in, in part for good reason. But one of the, the interesting and I think clear and disturbing messages that has been coming our way for, for a while, but 2020, for some reason, has just highlighted it big time. And we're not going to go into all of it today. We talked about it a little bit in the last series. But there's a message coming our way that America itself is a failed experiment. And we're told that America is bankrupt of morality, can't be a light on a hill, as, as the founding fathers said, or, or believed in dreams. But rather, it's a nation that's hopelessly, irredeemably racist and sexist. And there's an appeal right now in our country that's close to revolution, where some, if not many, are attracted to this idea that we, we get rid of those American ideals that we've had for so long, because they failed so many and oppressed so many others. We just need to start over. Listen for that language. It's out there. Strong sentiments that whatever, whatever values are old or traditional or been with us for a while, we've espoused them for a long time, we need to get rid of them. And that is utterly nonsensical. And I don't say that with uh, any attempted arrogance or rosy-colored glasses to pretend that America's perfect. It's always perfect. No, it's not. Humans are involved, so it's never going to be perfect. And it hasn't ever been perfect. Because where humans are involved, we know what we do. <laughs> we mess stuff up. We're not perfect. We're sinners. So there are sins in our country's history. There are sins today. But my goodness, if we actually the accurate history books and hear the the actual heart and desires and intentions and struggles and flaws of, of the founders and builders of this country, then what we will discover or rediscover that as Americans, we have a rich, godly heritage that has been bestowed to us in a way that I believe it's a mighty inheritance, a spiritual inheritance that we as Christians can be proud of and can be proud to preserve and defend and promote. So I want to look at some of these things that as we get into the history books, we can see, well, wow, man, that's a, the founders really got that right. And we can be proud to be American. And we can espouse and promote and defend those same types of things in the midst of a world in the midst of a culture that's increasingly wanting to cancel anything that wasn't decided in 
today. If it's old, get rid of it. No, no. But as we, we do this, we do have to keep in mind that as Christians, we have dual citizenship. Our primary citizenship is heaven. Philippians 3 says it this way, verses 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So that right there is our, in a nutshell, and there's many places, especially in the New Testament, that talk about it, that our ultimate, ultimate hope, our ultimate and great hope, is that the one and true and lasting, good, sovereign, almighty king is Jesus. And there's a day that we're looking forward to that he will have all things subjected to his feet. In other words, all things under his good and glorious and gracious rule on earth as it is in heaven. As he transforms our resurrected body and we step into the full realization of our glorious citizenship in the kingdom of heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our citizenship is ultimately God's kingdom of heaven. However, while on earth, Jesus makes it clear in the Great Commission that our job, our job as Christians is to give ourselves to the advancement of that kingdom, of the king's kingdom, of the king's domain on earth. As much as possible now as it's going to look like in heaven where people are saved, healed, delivered, transformed, set free. And it's meant to look a lot like the coming kingdom. That's Jesus' prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdoms of heaven and earth collide in Christ. And this kingdom knows no earthly boundaries. And we are commissioned to be carriers to the ends of the earth. Jesus said so that every tongue, tribe, and nation unites around the throne in worship of the one true king. And so with that mission in mind, we can all recognize that God has placed us where we are. Citizens of heaven, but citizens of earth. And so in the midst of this this now and not yet of the biblical prophetic timeline, as my buddy John would say, our job as citizens of right where we're at here in the United States of America is to see the kingdom of God advance. And so if we can look back into the history books, and again, not say everything was perfect, perfect but if we can see values within our constitution and within our declaration of independence and within the founders founding fathers and the way they said this is how we've got to live if we can see things in there that are good and right and noble and will advance God's kingdom within the scope of government then we should by all means get into that and be proud of it 
and do our best as citizens of this earth and citizens of the king's kingdom to promote that which will give God glory and advance his kingdom. So this morning I want to look at one of the most central, basic American ideals that we can be proud of. That actually, if you go into the history books, is in stark contrast with just about every other nation that has ever been founded. And it's a simple declaration of, in God we trust. And you go back into the history of nations and civilizations, and can you find one that so powerfully, humbly, profoundly, thoroughly declared dependence on Almighty God, the God of the Bible, that if anything good is going to happen long-term in this nation, it's because of God. And you can't find it outside of these United States of America. So there are things that to be utterly proud of, that to be informed, and this is part of where we got to get into history. And as I'm getting old now, I'm starting to recognize that history is so important because everything good in our life now, we are standing on the sacrifice of those who've gone before us, who have sacrificed greatly. And so to know the accurate facts of our history is so crucial because that is part of what's missing in our world right now where so many are, are led astray because they, they hear a little meme, a little soundbite, a little tweet, and they hear a narrative that grabs their emotions and takes them down a path that is destructive, not based on facts. So in this series, I want to take us more than I typically do into the history books and let us hear from our, our, our founders and our builders some incredible ideals that we could be proud of. In God we trust. So this American ideal began, arguably, with our spiritual forebears in the pilgrims of 1620. I've given whole messages on these folks. They're just a radical group, a tiny little church that sent 44 people across the ocean, 28 adults, and set the spiritual course of a nation. The founding governor of the Plymouth Colony said that it was their vision was a great hope and an inward zeal that they had of laying, just laying some good foundation, making some headway for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, even if we're just stepping stones for others who come after us. So in November 9th, 1620, when they spotted Cape Cod, Massachusetts, they stopped and what did they do? They showed their dependence on God by the pastor of the group, William Brewster, led them in a reading and a prayer, a singing of Psalm 100, a prayer of thanksgiving. Shout for joy, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is good. It's he who made us. We're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. That was their self-understanding of what was happening right now. A deep dependence on God, his providence, his faithfulness, his favor, his provision, his blessing to make this religious freedom experiment possible. Bradford would later reflect like this. He would say, thus out of small beginnings, greater things have been produced by his hand that made all things of nothing and gives being to all things that are. And as one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled hath shone unto many, yea, in some sort to our whole nation. Let the glorious name of Jehovah have all praise. That's the governor of the first colony of pilgrims. And what is the underlying kind of default posture? Give God glory. In God we trust. On God we depend for everything. By his hand that makes all things out of nothing. That's an echo to Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. That is the spiritual foundation that our, our forebears breathed. In him we live and move and have our being. And they just breathed this utter dependence on God. And that ruminated and saturated the spiritual soil of the colonies for 150 years to the point that at the First Continental Congress in 1774, we see it come to fruition in a document that forever changed the course of history. On September 4th, 1774, two years before the Declaration of Independence, delegates from across all 13 colonies arrived in Philadelphia to convene the very first ever Continental Congress. Many icons were there. George Washington, John Adams, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, Henry among others. But the atmosphere was tense, fearful. Rumors were circulating that very day that, that the British had just started to bomb Boston with cannons. Revolution and rumors of war, possibility of war, was just thick in the air. But it's a, it's a fearful bunch. I mean, this is 13 tiny little colonies face the specter of the most powerful military force on the planet at the time. There is much to discuss, and the hour is late. Yet before getting down to business of the day, Thomas Cushing from Massachusetts makes a motion that they begin the time with prayer. But some objected because of the fact that there were various denominations present. And so how do you pray when there's different kind of thoughts and perspectives and ways to pray? But Samuel Adams stood up and he seconded the motion and he declared that, and he was very well respected, and he said that he could hear from any gentleman of piety a prayer, any gentleman of piety and virtue who was at the same time a friend of this country, let him pray. And he nominated, across denominational lines, a local pastor in the area, local Anglican pastor named Jacob Duchesne. And Jacob Duchesne, 
Like good Anglican pastors of the time, when called to pray upon, they open their common book of prayer, which is pre-described for the date. The prescribed reading for the day, and this is where it gets kind of beautiful, happened to be Psalm 35, which says this, Plead my case, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. And then breaking script with typical Anglican uh, ways of, of liturgy. He burst out in an extemporaneous prayer and this is part of what he said. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reigns with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments, look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to you, to thee, from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on your gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on Thee. We ask this through the name and merits of Jesus Christ, Your Son and our Savior. Afterwards, John Adams was, was so moved by this prayer and how different it was from what might be a normal Anglican prayer. He described in a letter to his wife Abigail, Mr. Duchesne appeared and read several prayers in the established form and then read the scripture for the seventh day of September, which was Psalm 35. And you must remember that this was the next morning after we, after we heard the horrible rumor of the cannonade of Boston. I never saw a greater effect upon an audience. It seemed as if heaven had ordained that psalm to be read on that morning. After this, Mr. Duchesne, unexpectedly to everybody, struck out in an extemporary prayer which filled the bosom of every man present. I must confess, I never heard a better prayer or one so well pronounced, such fervor, such ardor, such earnestness and pathos, and in language so elegant and sublime for America, for the Congress, for the province of Massachusetts Bay, and especially for the town of Boston, it had an excellent effect on, upon everybody here. And according to other eyewitness accounts of the prayer, many delegates were in tears and some just dropped to their knees in the middle of the whole thing. This is Congress. <laughs> this is Congress. Duchesne was invited from that point forward to start each day of Congress's session in prayer. In what effect became America's first congressional chaplain. This is one of the places in which it became firmly embedded in the hearts and minds and spirits and later the documents of this country that in God we trust. Our hope is in God or nothing. 
They said, the prayer says, we, we are fleeing our dependence on Britain. What does it say there? To throw ourselves upon your gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on you. That made it into the Declaration of Independence. That sentiment right there, that we are separating our dependence from Britain and we are casting ourselves wholly dependent on you. That is a radical way to start a nation. But you can hear it in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence was an independence, Declaration of Independence from Britain and declares our dependence on God. I'm going to read a couple of the paragraphs from it. And just listen to the language that maybe was, was birthed in that moment of prayer where even John Adams said, the Holy Spirit showed up. God showed up. And all of us were affected. All of us were, he pierced our hearts. And listen to two years later, the official document that came out of that Congress. The unanimous declaration of 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. And it goes on famously, so we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator certain unalienable rights. That is the casting of dependence upon God. Cast off the bondage of Britain and cast ourselves on God. And then it goes through a list of abuses by King George II, the, the tyrant of the time. And it concludes with this. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. You hear what that's saying? We're casting ourselves on God, saying, God, if our intentions are pure, bless us. In some, this, this, this is a humility saying, we know we don't have it all together, but we know that de being dependent on Britain is not the way to go, so we're casting ourselves, we're taking this bold step of faith to start a nation and say, the only thing we can be dependent upon is you. So if there, are, there is a purity in our intentions, God, then bless it. And it goes on to say, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That, that's basically a prayer. Like the Declaration of Independence is basically a declaration of prayer dependence on God. Saying, if this is going to work, wow, do we need you, God. We're doing our best to write a document that reflects the values of humanity based on who we know you to be, but we need your help and protection and provision. Bless us if we're on the right course. <laughs> I would argue the founding document of this United States of America is one nice big prayer.
prayer of in God we trust. The founders here are tapping into some very, very basic aspects of the Judeo-Christian biblical worldview that it stands in stark contrast with how any other nation has ever begun, with the exception of the nation of Israel, which is part of the Bible. <laughs> but let's take Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. That is not something that any other nation took for granted. It wasn't assumed. This nation is assuming that at the beginning of it all is God. God creating. That ultimately we are subject to God. We're not out here in the universe alone just to do our own thing. But a deep dependence on and submission to God is where we start life. And if we're starting a nation, therefore it's where we start the nation. And you hear that in the Declaration of independence in that famous line we hold these truths to be self-evident that's a declaration of faith <laughs> all men are created equal that's Genesis 1 26 to 28 by their creator that's Genesis 1 1 the stuff doesn't come from nowhere do you know that in the in the Continental Congress when they were debating the Declaration of Independence the Bible was quoted more than any other document more than any other thinker, more than any other book. There's people out there, there's Montesquieu, there's Locke, there's important, there's philosophers that influenced, but none of them were quoted even more than 10%. In the debates about what should be in the documents and what should the, the country be founded on, the Bible is quoted 34% of the time, according to the manuscripts of the Continental Congress. These founders were deeply, deeply dependent upon God. Or how about Proverbs 9.10? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's, you see it all throughout the Declaration of Independence. It's a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Outside of you, we know nothing. Outside of you, we're not going to be able to figure this out. Outside of you, we don't have insight into the perfect union and how to create it. And we'll see that more in the time coming. Or Psalm 14.1 is a good one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. To start the nation with the premise that there is no God is foolishness. And corruption will shortly follow. And I, I believe for us, for such a time as this, that's a basic premise right there. That as we see in our nation, a strong segment of the population grabbing on to this idea that there is no God. We don't need God in our nation. We can start over and get rid of all the things that have to do with God. And, that, and that's where we can push back and say, show me a country that that's worked out well for. What you'll find, if you honestly look into the history books, is just genocide and atrocity almost every time. The fool says there is no God. 
About eight years, well, 12 years later or so, 11 years later, at the Constitutional Convention, after eight years of revolutionary war, 1787, the colonies emerged victorious, a free nation, but the free and fled fledgling nation had no constitution to establish a federal government. So in May of 1787, again, delegates from all of the now United States, 13 United States of America, convened in Philadelphia for what's now the Constitutional Convention. But if you look into the history books, what you'll find is that after about four or five weeks, it wasn't going well. There were very sharp disagreements from the delegates. Those icons that we know of vehemently disagreed with each other. And serious discord was happening. There was, there was not a, a United States of America that says this is the best way to do a federal government. There was a standstill. It was stagnant. It was discord. It wasn't good. And the oldest man in the room rose up, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, who was supposedly the least religious of the founding fathers. Hard to believe after this, but he stood up. We got to get this. This is Congress. This is Congress gathered trying to write a constitution to create a federal government for a fledgling nation. And all of the founders that you know and love are gathered and they're struggling. They're, there is division and discord. And an old man stands up and he makes a motion, an official motion to this. Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the producing as many no's and a's or eyes as methinks is melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. In other words, pause right there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. On our own, we're not going to get very far. He stands up and says, on our own, we're not getting very far. We indeed seem to feel our own lack of political wisdom. Since we have been running about in search of it, we have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different form, forms of those republics which having been formed in, with the seeds of their own disillusion now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable for our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth are, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, watch this, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? Eleven years, and this shows the trajectory of human nature, how easy it is. Eleven years ago, thirteen years ago, 
when a motion was made, hey, we should start these, this Continental Congress with prayer, and, and Pastor Jacob Duche prays after John Adams seconds the motion, and the Holy Spirit shows up and changes all of their lives, and they put forth a declaration of independence firmly dependent on God. And, and Benjamin Franklin stands up, supposedly the least spiritual of all of them, and says, we've lost our way. What are we doing? We forgot where we've come from already. He goes on. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible to danger, we had a daily prayer in this room for divine, divine protection. Oh, that's a powerful phrase right there. When you're scared and you know you need God, we're quick to go to him. But when you have success, it's easy to get prideful and forget your dependence and kind of leave him behind. And Benjamin Franklin calls out the founders on that. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed how frequently, how frequent, excuse me, excited. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. So he's saying, look back at the revolution. All of us can see how many times it must have been God. Have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? <laughs> this is Congress. I have lived, sir, talking to Washington, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writing, Psalm 127, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. <sighs> yeah, Ben. Go Benny. The least spiritual of the founding fathers just preached maybe the most important sermon in our nation's history. A few days later, most likely in response to this plea, George Washington, who was not president yet, that happens two years later because there's no federal government papers, right? So he was elected president of the Constitutional Convention. So what does he do with his power? He says, delegates, we're going to church. And he takes them to a local church right there in Philadelphia where William Rogers sees, and can you imagine this pastor? 
He's doing his church service, and all of a sudden he sees the United States of America Congress roll in. He just got a little nervous. And he prays this prayer over them. Oh, Lord, as this is a period with big events, impenetrable by any human scrutiny, we fervently recommend to thy fatherly notice that body assembled in this city who compose our federal convention. Will it please thee, O eternal I am, to favor them from day to day with thy immediate presence? Be thou their wisdom and their strength. Enable them to devise such good measures as may prove happily instrumental for the healing of all divisions and the promoting of the good of the whole, that the United States of America may furnish the world with one example of a free and permanent government, which shall be the result of human and mutual deliberation, and which shall not, like other governments, whether ancient or modern, spring out of mere chance or established by force. We close this, our solemn address, by saying, as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has taught us, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Washington led the delegates in the Lord's Prayer. And then they all returned to Independence Hall to get to work on a document that soon emerged with this as the opening line. We, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union. So after five weeks of discord and division, old man Franklin gets up, calls them to humble themselves before God and pray. Washington takes them to church as a group. He says, Congress, we're going to church. The pastor seizes the moment and prays for divine help for unity that all the discord would leave and we would be able to come out a United States of America and shortly later the Constitution is birthed in the opening line. We, the people, in order to form a more perfect union. James Madison often is often called the father of the Constitution. And he later reflected on these events taking place. And this was his take. The real wonder is that the Constitutional Convention overcame so many difficulties. And to overcome them with so much agreement was as unprecedented as it was unexpected. And here we go. It is impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it a finger of that almighty hand, which was also so frequently extended to us in the critical stages of, of revolution. In God we trust. A deep and authentic dependence upon God.
for the hope of the nation going forward. I, I want us to capture here these stories, these things that we're reading. These are not just, oh, these are, you know, typical ways at the time of talking. You know, these, it, this is just kind of cultural norms. This is just kind of civic religion where, where politicians would just kind of mentally assent to God. Absolutely not. These founders had an absolute clean slate. They could write whatever they wanted. I believe what you are seeing are vibrant testimonies of the living God of the Bible being present and powerful and personal in the lives and in the collective group of our founders to change hearts, to, to call them to a humility, to call them to even a repentance, come back before you've gone too far away in writing a constitution that forgets me, come back. Remember where you've come from. Remember where you've started. I believe they lived out 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. God opposes the proud. And you, but gives grace to the humble. You see that in these documents where they're saying, we don't want to be like other nations. In what way? In primarily saying, we don't need God. Or God doesn't exist. Or we can do this without God. We are putting God right in the front and center of our conversations. We've got to pray at the beginning. We've got to go to church to get our hearts right. We've got to put it in the documents themselves. This deep dependence, this humility before God. Because we know that God opposes the proud. If you want to do it on your own strength as an individual or as a nation, it's not going to end well, ever. Life is meant to be lived in Deep dependence upon, submission to, connection to God, His goodness, His blessing, His power. I'll close with uh, the words of George Washington as he was elected president a couple years later after the Constitution was ratified. Almost two years, April 30th, 1789. George Washington's taking the oath of office as the first president of the United States. By his choice, setting precedent, he took the oath, putting his hand on a Bible, opened it to Genesis chapter 49, which is not inconsequential or unintentional. That's the passage where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons who are destined to become a great nation by God's power. Sealing, his, sealing the oath of the presidency with the simple words, I do, he then bent down onto one knee and he kissed the Bible. Apparently, historians say the crowds just erupted in Glorious applause. 
in Washington in typical fashion, not one for great fanfare, just turned around and walked in to the federal building and said these words to the, the first Congress as, his, as president. The very first words of the very first president of the United States of America to Congress are this. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. First words of our first president to the first Congress. In a nutshell, in God, we must keep trusting. And in his farewell address, almost 20 years later, wrote a letter to say goodbye at the end of his second term of presidency. He says this quite simply, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. So he began his presidency and he finished his second presidency and among other things, as he said farewell, he said, in God, we must continue to trust to have any hope as a nation. This is a testimony of a man who saw God at work powerfully, personally present in his life and in the life of of this nation and therefore he knew that there was no better way to live as an individual or as a nation than to declare in God we trust so our challenge before us today is to get before God in this season and in the months and weeks and years to come and say God how hopefully today what you've seen are real testimonies of the founders and builders of this nation encouraging testimonies that they weren't afraid to say we need you God and when they've gone and then when they went astray they weren't afraid to call themselves back to repent and come back to God and say we need to come back and declare our dependence upon God once again so as an individual as a nation there's a beautiful picture of genuine life with God both personally and for government. So the question for each of us to wrestle with and, and talk with and, and, and be in community talking about is that how can we do our part to act, to, to preserve, to defend and promote on an individual level, at a city level, at a state, and all the way up to the federal level of our nation. How can we promote the good news that this nation will succeed and prosper when we from the depths of our bones live out the truth now we need God 
Let's wrestle with that moving forward. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. In the same way that Ben Franklin brought that inspiring call of repentance to say we, we don't have the wisdom on our own. We've tried on our own and we've, end up in, we've ended up in divisions and discord. We need you, God. We come with that same heart right now, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God, we ask for your help. That as we move forward, we can both be proud of this very clear, wonderful value that our founders and builders had of just being utterly dependent upon God, knowing that the abundant life for an individual and a nation comes from you and you alone. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened by their faith, by their testimony, and may it become more clearly part of ours. We also humble ourselves and ask for help. As James said, give us wisdom. How do we live this out now in the spheres of influence that you've given us, with the earthly citizenship that you've given us, with grace and humility and patience and gentleness and power and assertiveness? We pray for divine wisdom for each of us in our sphere of influence to live out this glorious truth that in God we trust as our only hope, as the foundational way of life for a nation. Help us, Lord. We pray that we would be filled with your creativity, with your words for the moment that you give us. Maybe it's with our neighbors. Maybe it's with coworkers. Maybe it's with kings and rulers and high places that you put us before. Wherever, Lord, you give us to live out our citizenship of both earth and heaven, we pray you help us do it well. To the glory of God and the advancement of our king's kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dance like day.